Let's pray. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. God, I pray that your people would be deeply comforted by the news that her sins are pardoned and her warfare will end. God, and we thank you that there will be an everlasting song that says, Jesus is Lord. So we come asking that you would work in us what is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week, we began the book of Nahum. So please turn there if you haven't already. Start in the New Testament and go back, 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 just a few short books. There you are. Uh, While you're doing that, I'll briefly recap where we've been. Nahum is a prophetic word of judgment against the capital city of Assyria, which is Nineveh, was Nineveh. Nahum's prophecy and proclamation happened in the mid-7th century B.C. So here's some biblical landmarks to locate that. Uh, That's roughly 150 years after Jonah went to Nineveh, proclaimed judgment, revival happened. God spared the city. Uh, It's roughly 75 years after Assyria conquered and exiled Uh, Israel, the kingdom of God's people in the northern part of the land. Uh, And then Nahum prophesied right in the middle of Assyria dominating the ancient Near East, including God's people who were left in the land in the south, the kingdom called Judah. That's where we get the the word Jewish, uh, a Judean. Um. Noteworthy is the manner in which Assyria was dominant neighbors. Uh, she was notorious for brutality and cruelty. And, and really, I'll, I'll read you some historical uh, excerpts that prove this during our next sermon on Nahum, not this one. Uh, that really, the, their brutality has only been equaled or surpassed a few times in the history of the world. Uh, So when Nahum wrote, uh, the ruthless, oppressive control of Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh, had been exercised over Judah for many decades. And in the midst of this, God raises up a prophet named Nahum, which means comfort or compassion, uh, to proclaim judgment upon Nineveh, capital of Assyria. And again, they had become um, public enemy number one of God's people, and therefore, as we'll see, of God himself, and really, as the end of the book will tell us, of humanity, generally speaking. Uh, Nahum first spoke into this situation, we saw last time, the first half of chapter 1, by just giving a revelation of who God is. Uh, That's in verses 1 through 8. We only made it to verse 7 last week. We'll begin this morning uh, by looking at verse 8. Verse 8 is the final word, or, or the conclusion Uh, the coda for you music people, of this revelation of the Lord. Um, How's that for an attention-grabbing introduction? Uh, Remember our sermon title from last week that was meant to capture what what that revelation of God uh, displayed was the vengeance and goodness of God. Uh, Perhaps a better title would have been, as we're about to see, the vengeance and goodness of God. And vengeance of God. Because, because this revelation uh, that reads very much like a psalm ends playing the same note that started it. God is an avenger. So look at verse 8 with me. And this is our first main point. Uh, the conclusion of Nahum's revelation of God. The conclusion of Nahum's revelation of God. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Uh, This is the end of those who oppose God. Uh, This verse describes the time 
of God's enemies will come to an end and the place where God's enemies will end up. Notice it started by comparing God's judgment to an overflowing flood. That should ring a bell for you. Uh, The flood is, of course, a vivid picture of God's judgment throughout the Bible. I think the main point of the flood imagery here is the suddenness of God's judgment. He is slow to anger, verse 3 told us. But when he determines he cannot, must not, forbear any longer, he will be swift to act. Uh, An overflowing flood also pictures the completeness or the thoroughness of God's judgment. A flood leaves nothing untouched. Its destructive path is perfectly even and thorough. Uh, If you're caught in an overflowing flood, there's nowhere to go. Everywhere you look around, it's more of the same. Judgment in every direction, as far as the eye can see. Uh, Think about the end of the verse now. It says, he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Darkness in the Bible frequently is a metaphor for the final destination of God's enemies. Uh, Think about Jesus who talked about um, casting people into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you want to see what the Bible says about hell, the place you should start is Jesus. No one spoke more about hell than he did. Um, this idea of, of darkness as, as a place, uh, we're set up for that uh, with, with what comes before it in the verse. Literally, we could translate this verse, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of her place. And his enemies, he will pursue to darkness. Uh, so, so through judgment, God will uh, uproot his enemies, as it were, from her place and chase them to Darkness, her new place, as it were. Uh, Throughout the Bible, darkness symbolizes a place of distress, terror, mourning, perplexity, dread. And darkness also symbolizes estrangement from the presence of God. What what is the metaphor for being in the presence of God that the Bible uses is, is light, And in the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of Revelation, it says there won't be any need for a sun or a moon uh, because God will be there and he will be their light. So the idea of of darkness as estrangement from the presence of his glory. Calvin summarizes helpfully, I think, this verse in this way. The import of what is said is that God would, by a sudden inundation, destroy his enemies And that he would destroy them without affording any hope of restoration, for perpetual darkness would follow that sudden deluge. So the flood that comes, the darkness that follows, I think is a pretty powerful picture of what the middle of the verse says. God will make a complete end of his enemies. Um, We think so little of God's judgment probably because we only read parts of the Bible. And and a lot of times when people do think about judgment, too often their thoughts are, uh, I have plenty more time to get right with God, and I have plenty more chances to get right with God. Uh, Please, let this verse undercut both of those for you. God's judgment when it comes is sudden, like a flood, and final. Like darkness. That's why the Bible says, Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart against him. Uh, and thus concludes the psalm like revelation of God as an avenger. It also transitions us to the next section of the book. And what happens next is this general revelation of God is applied specifically to the situation of Judah and Nineveh. Uh, is that instructive for us or what? The, the first place you should go when you're trying to interpret any situation you find yourself in, what, what just happened? What's happening here? What will happen? We'll answer that question by asking another question. Who is God? Who is God? Commentator says succinctly, uh, the bold prophet Nahum of prophet of the Lord, builds his case against Nineveh on the certainty of God's unchanging nature. Uh, So you should 
see every situation happening to you and around you through the lens of God's character. Why should you do that? Because God is in control. Say the same thing flipped around. Maybe it's easy to to, uh, latch on to that way. Because God is in control of everything, we should interpret everything that happens to us and around us through the lens of who God is. That's the life of faith, isn't it? Just believe God. Live believing God. Not believing in the idea of God, not believing in God, just mental assent. Does God exist? Check, yes, I do. Bump up the, the numbers of Americans that believe in God in surveys. Not, not that. Believe God. Personal trust. And the Holy Spirit-inspired prophet Nahum does that beginning in verse 9 for Judah and for Nineveh. And that begins our second main point. This is the application of Nahum's revelation of God. The application of Nahum's revelation of God. And what it is, is dual decrees concerning Nineveh and Judah. If you received a sermon outline handout, did you receive one of those? They're... uh, Yes, they're on the back table. Thanks, Dana. Um, In the first eight verses, they spoke generally of God. But starting in verse 9, in the rest of chapter 1, there is a whole lot of you, you, you. Uh, There is a word directly spoken to Nineveh, which is followed by a word directly spoken to Judah. And then that sequence happens again. A word directly spoken to Nineveh, a word directly spoken to Judah. And they're, they're intertwined. And so it just goes, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. So really, I think we could think of these dual decrees actually as uh, two alternate perspectives of the same single act of God, like two sides of one coin. Uh, because God's salvation of his people always comes through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. Judgment on God's enemies is for the sake of the salvation of God's people. That's not just unique to Nahum. Uh, Nahum's just one variation on that major theme that runs throughout the Bible. That's how history is going to end, with salvation coming through judgment, and judgment happening for the sake of salvation. Uh, to use the language of this book, perhaps in, instead of salvation through judgment, we should say uh, comfort through vengeance. That's a good three-word summary. summary of this book, comfort through vengeance. Uh, and you know in Luke 4, when Jesus takes a scroll from Isaiah 61 and he reads it and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's appointed me to preach good news uh, to open the eyes of the blind, to, uh, to set the captives free, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped and he says, it's happening in, in me. Well, the very next part of that verse from Isaiah talks about how the day of vengeance will be for the comfort of those who mourn. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Part of the gospel is comfort through vengeance. We'll talk more about that if that uh, mystifies you. This will become clear as we go on. Uh, Look at verse 9 with me. This begins the first direct word to Nineveh. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. That first phrase is incredible. What do you plot against the Lord? Uh, Wait, wait. Who is Nineveh plotting against? Isn't this whole thing about how Nineveh is plotting against and oppressing Judah? Yes. And God takes it personal. That's the point. God says here, the enemies of my people I count as my own. Verse 11 makes the same connection. It starts, from you came one who plotted evil against, not Judah, against the Lord. The way God identifies with his people is is breathtaking. 
counting his people's enemies as his enemies. Uh, I know I've said something like this from the pulpit before, but, but that's only because I see it all over the Bible. The strongest indicator of how you relate to the Lord is how you relate to his people. From the beginning, that's been so. Uh, when God set the program of salvation into motion, the call of Abraham, he told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Fast forward all the way to the New Testament. And remember, Paul's persecuting the church. And Jesus appears to Paul, and, and he, then his name is Saul. And he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The way you relate to God's people is the strongest indicator of the way that you relate to God himself. It's amazing. Uh, Here's Calvin's takeaway. Nahum teaches us in general. That's probably going to be good, whatever he says next, right? Nahum teaches us in general that the ungodly, whenever they harass the church, not only do wrong to men, but also fight with God himself. For he so connects us with himself that all who hurt us touch the apple of his eye. We may then gather invaluable comfort, Nahum, from these words. For we can fully and boldly set up this shield against our enemies. Um, Let me make a few comments about the enemies of God. Uh, The first thing that needs to be said is, is there any way in which you are living as an enemy of God? How do you answer that? Is there any way in which you are living as an enemy of God's people? Do you ever plot against them? Do you ever wish harm upon them, even plan out how that might happen? Uh, Do you ever try and drag any of God's people into sin? Listen to uh, how Jesus applied uh, this this God-God's people connection in that context of dragging God's people into sin. In Mark 9, 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, So be careful. God cares about his people. And I should say, take comfort. God cares about his people. Uh, There are enemies of God's people all over the world right now. This is most vividly portrayed uh, in violent persecution. It's happening all over the Middle East, Africa, the Far East, other places. And so I think that one of the reasons we might be so uncomfortable, uh, no pun intended, so uncomfortable with the fierce vengeance described in Nahum is because we do not identify like we should with our brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world. Don't you know that Christians in Syria and Iraq and India and Pakistan need the comfort that comes from Nahum? Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So if you're not deeply comforted by the vengeance of God upon the enemies of God, It's probably a sign that you aren't doing what Hebrews 13.3 commands us to do. To remember so dearly, to identify with so closely your brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering because they carry the name of Christ. You You should feel and see their mistreatment as if it is your own because you are also part of the body. Uh, In ways that are very less severe, but also very real, Uh, the enemies of God's people move against us here. Ultimately, all of the enemies of the people of God are, albeit unknowingly, in league with the arch enemy of God, the devil himself, who has set himself up also as the arch enemy of the people of God. Uh, And the greatest enemy of God's people in the world is not only at work in Syria, he's at work in Fort Worth. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy. 
This is a word of great comfort, Nahum. That God would count our enemies his own and that he will act accordingly. Uh, Friends, this is why you can patiently endure evil. This is why you can even return good for evil. Because God will hold people accountable for the way that they treat you. God is keeping close watch and God will do what is right. So you can bless instead of revile. You can pray for those who persecute you. And this is why you should love your neighbor as yourself, why you should especially love your brothers and sisters in Christ, because God holds you accountable for the way that you treat them. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Um, Moving on, notice the direct application of of prior revelation of God in this verse. Verse 8 said, Generally, the Lord makes a complete end of his adversaries. Verse 9 applies that directly. It says, Because this is who God is, God will make a complete end. Same phrase of you, Nineveh. And the last part of the verse underscores the completeness of this end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Uh, The word trouble is the same one used in verse 7, where it says, God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Because here we see in this verse that the day of trouble won't last forever. The Lord always shelters his people from suffering any ultimate harm. And he will ultimately bring a total end to the trouble his people face. Comfort. Uh, Even during Judah's 7th century BC day of trouble... From Assyria, the Lord was a stronghold even then for them. Sovereignly limiting how far that trouble could go and what it could and did affect. God promised Judah that the sun would set on the day of trouble from Assyria and that it wouldn't rise on another one. Now verse 10 uses word pictures to illustrate That when the Lord promises to make a complete end, it is a complete end indeed. Verse 10, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. So really there there are two metaphors in this verse. Uh, One, things that are easily destroyed by fire. Two, a drunk. Uh, Thorns being consumed by fire is used many other places uh, in the word to describe judgment. Uh, One commentator helpfully puts it this way, the verse describes a fire destroying dry thorn bushes or stubble left in the fields after the harvest. The entangled thorn bushes allow the fire to spread over the land until they are all consumed. Uh, Burning stubble or chaff likewise is a frequent Old Testament picture of judgment, Uh, maybe the best way to to drive that home is think about something opposite of it. Think about a wet log. Uh, It is not going to burn very easily. And if you get it to light, it it should go for a little while. Opposite of that, fully dried stubble or chaff. God's opponents will uh, not be able to withstand his judgment. Drunkenness is also a picture of experiencing God's wrath in the Old Testament. Uh, A lot of other Old Testament prophets talk about God's wrath like a cup of wine. And it says his enemies will drink it down to the dregs. And so just like the drunk feels intensely the effects of his drink, so too God's enemies will feel intensely the effects of God's wrath. Uh, A drunk will drink his drink until there's nothing left. And likewise, God's enemies will uh, not receive just a partial outpouring of wrath. Again, this is a picture of the complete end coming to those who defy God, to those who oppose his people, to those who will not repent and trust Christ. Um, I pointed out earlier that verse 11 uh, starts out by making the same point in verse 9. From you came one who plotted evil 
against whom? Against the Lord, a worthless counselor or a wicked counselor. Um, So 11 repeats the point made in verse 9, but it goes beyond it in that it describes these plots are evil. That's because God is good, verse 7 said. So anything that opposes him or anything that is contrary to his will is necessarily evil. Uh, And verse 11 also goes beyond verse 9 because it seems to be singling someone out, an individual. Look, it says, from you came one who plotted against the Lord. And this one is called a worthless or a wicked counselor, or you could say a, a counselor of worthlessness or wickedness. Uh, so here, Nahum is no longer implicating Assyria generally, but her leader specifically, her king, the one who, who, who leads her toward these evil plots in the Lord, or the, who counsels the nation to go this way. Uh, boy, this is really interesting. Uh, this term, wicked or worthless, is worth our attention. Uh, it's actually uh, the word uh, belial, which... Uh, doesn't sound interesting to you yet, but I hope it will in a little bit. Um, uh, uh, this term is used earlier in the Old Testament to describe people who are, who are just generally despicable, uh, conspicuously depraved, really, really wicked. The word is uh, belial. Um, at the end of the book of Judges, there are men who, who demand that they be allowed to abuse a visitor who comes uh, into their city throughout the night, and they're called sons of Belial. Uh, Eli's sons in First Samuel 1 and 2 are called sons of Belial because of how they're abusing um, get people's gifts to the Lord. Nabal, the fool who refused to help David in First Samuel 15, is called a son of Belial. So generally speaking, uh, a son of Belial is just an absolute scoundrel, uh, one who is quite evidently a display of depravity. So these are strong words for the king of Assyria. Uh, But perhaps if if you remember um, a particular king of Assyria, talked about in the Bible, King Sennacherib, how he came against Jerusalem and he uh, threatened God's people and he taunted God himself. Okay, the shoe fits if that's the mold for what a king of Assyria is like. Although this word had a very broad meaning, First, in between the Testaments, the word was used over and over and over to refer to Satan himself. In the New Testament, the word is used one time. 2 Corinthians 6.15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Has Christ with Satan? Uh, So, here's the question. Should we then... Read this description, a counselor of Belial, and associate a serious king with Satan. Um, Fifty years earlier, Isaiah prophesied, and he wrote about the downfall of the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And in the middle of his talking about the downfall of the king of Babylon, he starts using language where You just look around and think, we're not talking about the king of Babylon anymore, are we? In in language that suggests analogies to the fall of Satan himself. And a few years later, uh, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28 describes judgment coming on the king of Tyre. And again, he does so in a way that suggests analogies to the fall of Satan himself. Um, Because of that, I think we're on safe ground to say that the judgment that came on this evil Assyrian king who opposes God's people, we should see as a foretaste or a type of the judgment coming on the father and commander of all evil, the chief opponent of God's people, the devil. Uh, Here's how O. Palmer Robertson puts it. He says, in 2 Corinthians 6.15, Paul sets Christ and Belial over against one another. Christ and Belial represent rulers of two diametrically opposed kingdoms. Paul's contrast represents the climax of the same conflict represented in Nahum. 
an ominous figure stands behind the ruler from Nineveh, prodding him on in his wicked determinations. But one stands against him, the divine counterpart to his position of power. It is the Christ, the anointed king who rules for the Lord throughout the ages. These two persons and the kingdoms they represent remain in conflict with one another until their struggle is finally ended. So the judgment directed specifically against 7th century Assyria represents a critical moment in the divine program for preserving the redemption of his people. The Lord displays through the destruction of Assyria the most powerful of nations cannot succeed in their opposition to the purposes of the Lord. Um, so, So though God addresses Nineveh directly in these verses, no doubt he does so through Nahum, so that God's people will overhear. And he did it so we could overhear 2,700 years later, and that we would be comforted by the same truth, your enemy will fall. Luther pulls on this thread. He says, the book teaches us, again, this should be good, right? The book teaches us to trust God and to believe, especially when we despair of all human help, human powers, and counsel, that the Lord stands by those who are his, shields his own against all attacks of the enemy, be they ever so powerful. This is comfort. Uh, Verse 9 through 11, if they indirectly address God's people, verse 12 and 13, do so directly. So read verse 12 with me. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down or uh, mowed down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So first, the Lord said, uh, though they are at full strength in many. Remember, Nahum's prophesying in a, during a serious heyday. There is no perceivable chink in the armor. Here, here's Robertson again. Even while they are undiminished in strength, full of arrogant self-confidence, God will level them to the ground. This numerous populace would be mowed down, to borrow the language of the verse, like so many blades of grass. Once a mowing operation has begun, thousands of blades of grass disappear in an instant. Um, I think an application for us here is do not put your hope in what is exalted in the eyes of man. So often when Assyria was Uh, I'm sorry, when Israel was afflicted by other nations, where would they run to for help, for refuge, for stronghold? To other nations that appeared mighty. Do not hope in the winners of wars or culture wars or elections or job promotions or popularity contests. Uh, The opponents of God and his people will not, to use the language of this verse, be at full strength for long, relatively speaking. Hope in God who brings to nothing the things that are and calls into existence the things that are not. Um, And in in an an amazing way, just like we saw in verses 9 through 11, in verse 12, the Lord reads himself into the story of Judah and Nineveh again. Note, he doesn't say, though Assyria has afflicted you, they will afflict you no more. No. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, says the Lord. The Lord is in control of the afflictions of his people. Remember, the Lord foretold this would happen. We talked about this last time. He he predicted, Israel, when you get in the land, I know what's in your heart. You're going to go after other gods. I'm going to be provoked to jealousy. And I'm going to send other nations to judge you, to discipline you. And so when you combine uh, this word, I am afflicting you, with what we read in verses 9 through 11, their plots are against me. What a breathtaking picture. 
at the very same time, by the very same actions, Nineveh was sinning against the Lord and being used by God to accomplish his good purposes in the world. Is that an unspeakable comfort and revelation of God's glory? At the very same time, by the very same actions, Nineveh was sinning against the Lord and being used by God to accomplish his good purposes in the world. When they were plotting against Judah, unwittingly, they were plotting against the Lord. And when they were afflicting Judah, unwittingly, they were afflicting for the Lord. The plots that were aimed at God were actually on another level being governed by him. Glory. God is sovereign over everything. Everything. Can it be that Assyria was responsible for all of this in a way that deserves judgment? All the while, God was responsible for this, but in a way that deserves praise. Yes. Yes. They meant it for evil, and they should be judged for their oppression of Judah. But God meant it for good, and he should be praised for Assyria's oppression of Judah. Uh, Isaiah 10. There's a, you can look at it later. 10, starting in verse 5 and following, uh, God addresses Assyria and says, Ah, the rod of my anger. The rod of my anger. And then later, in verse 7, he says, But Assyria does not so intend. That, those aren't his intentions. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. So Assyria has been the tool of God's jealous wrath contrary to their intentions and so they will be the object of God's jealous wrath. God says, your evil plans to destroy my people are actually also my plans to do them good. I, if God is for you, who can be against you? I just want to keep saying the same thing over and over again. This is so glorious. God is sovereign over Assyria, and Assyria is responsible for their sins. God, in a way, completely praiseworthy. Assyria, in a way, completely blameworthy, justly worthy of judgment. He's in control of the afflictions we experience. Now, quickly, uh, by saying this, I don't mean to indicate that all of our afflictions that we experience are the direct result of God's hand of discipline against us. Not all of the afflictions we experience are like the afflictions that Judah experienced at the hands of Assyria. Not always the result of some direct sin on our part. Well, what about those kinds of afflictions? Is God in control of those too? Remember Job. Uh, Job was the most righteous man in all the earth. Satan comes to him and uh, asks if he, Satan, can stretch out his hand against the Lord, against Job. And the Lord says, go ahead. And so Satan does. And then after that, remember what Job said? The Lord gave and Satan has taken away. No. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So who is responsible there? Satan, in a way, is totally blameworthy and worthy of judgment. And God, in a way, that he should be praised, that he cannot be charged with wrong,
even though affliction from the Lord is not always punishment or discipline for sin, uh, it is always intended to free us from sin in greater measure. Psalm 119, 67 and following says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Um, Verse 13 teaches that not only is he in control of his people's afflictions, but he also will bring them to an end. Look at 13. Now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. That's a beautiful picture. Concerning the afflictions you face, have faced, will face, God is in control of how much, how long, what kind, and what it can and does affect. And he said they won't last forever. Uh, Verse 19 toggles back to directly addressing Nineveh. Uh, This begins round two of the Lord's dual decrees. Uh, Quickly, verse 14 starts, The Lord has given commandment about you. What an incredible way to describe world history. Uh, We're used to hearing things like, uh, Nature hears God's voice and obeys. Well, this says that world history hears God's command and obeys. The Babylonians and the Medes uh, were responsible for the fall of Nineveh. But this verse says, like Nineveh before them, little did they know they were carrying out the commands of the Lord. Uh, The you throughout this verse in verse 14 is singular, suggesting that again the king of Nineveh specifically is in view. Uh, What's the command the Lord gave concerning Nineveh's king? Look at the rest of verse 14. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Uh, which means people with your name won't keep being born uh, because your, your branch of the family tree is, is ending with you. And again, he says, From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. Uh, those that you trust in as your gods will not be able to help you. Finally, he says, I will make your grave, for you are vile. Can you imagine the living God of hosts saying, I will dig your grave? God has promised to thus end his people's afflictions by bringing an end to his people's enemies. Verse 15 addresses Judah one more time. This is glorious. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. Hence the title of this sermon. This is Nahum's gospel, or good news. Who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Never again shall the worthless, Belial, pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum's gospel. This this verb to bring good news is used for uh, the messenger who runs back the message after a battle to tell the victorious king that they've won. The enemy's been defeated. And so Nahum uh, is inviting God's people, while Assyria is at full strength, inviting God's people to look on the mountains and see a messenger coming who's giving the good news that the battle has been fought and won. The enemy is cut off. Belial won't keep passing through. It's amazing. Uh, And because by faith, uh, uh, Judah was supposed to see this good news before it was actualized in their experience. They were encouraged to keep their feasts, fulfill their vows, serve the Lord with full confidence, full celebration, full consecration, in the sure hope of your redemption, even before the full possession of your redemption is in your hands. Go ahead. Go ahead. Despite the yoke of Assyria on you, celebrate your freedom. Uh, Despite Assyria demanding large tribute from you, go ahead and give your first fruits to the Lord. We can apply this directly, can't we? When it doesn't look like the Lord will win the day, remember he has promised otherwise and be faithful. One last step. Uh, 
this verb to bring good news, is the one that's translated preach the gospel in the New Testament. Behold on the mountains the feet of one who preaches the gospel. Nahum's good news, Nahum's gospel, is a type of the gospel that we hope in as Christians. Now, some of you, maybe you're astute interpreters of the Bible, and you thought, that's too easy. Come on. That, that's kind of a contrived connection. Uh, but actually, the Holy Spirit, through the authors of Scripture, connect these two for us. Uh, here's why. In this verse, Nahum is actually quoting, using the language of a previous prophet, Isaiah. And Isaiah uh, prophesies, as Nathan read from Isaiah 40, Isaiah prophesies a great, in times, final salvation for God's people. The authors of the New Testament say this is fulfilled through the ministry of Christ. And in Isaiah 52.7, Isaiah 52.7, Isaiah said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, here's the good news, your God reigns. So this final good news salvation that Isaiah prophesied is when someone would be able to come and say, Your God reigns, or be able to come and say, the kingdom of God is at hand, as a certain man did in Mark 1, 14 and 15, whose name was Jesus. Uh, Later, in that same chapter of Isaiah, 52, the end of 52 and 53 tells us how God will accomplish this great salvation, is through the ministry of what's called the suffering servant, through one who would bear the sins of God's people, and the chastisement that would be upon him would bring us peace, good news, published peace. Hang with me. And then Paul takes the same verse that Nahum takes out of Isaiah to apply to his situation. Paul takes that same verse, Isaiah 52, 7, and quotes it to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ, what is that? It's the good news of his death, resurrection, and how that wins for us forgiveness of sins and uh, credited righteousness before God if we'll just trust him. And it also wins for us a share in the ultimate victory and inheritance of God's people when he comes again and judges God's enemies. Uh, So Nahum's gospel is not a type of the gospel of Christ, not because Nahum is directly predicting the ministry of Christ here. No, no. But Isaiah did, according to Paul. And Nahum picks up that language and he applies it to this situation to say this is like that. What's going to happen to Assyria for the sake of Judah fits the mold, fulfills the pattern of the great salvation God will work in Christ. Uh, This is called typology. It's part of biblical theology. Jason's going to do a Sunday school on it in a few weeks. So it's right for us to read this. Behold on the feet Behold on the mountains a messenger bringing good news and cherish Christ. Because the thing previewed by Nahum's gospel is Christ. Just like God saved Judah through the judgment that came on Assyria, God saved his people through the judgment that came on Christ that we deserve for our sin. God saved his people through the judgment that came on the devil During Christ's first coming, Jesus said he came to destroy the works of the devil, that is sin. The Bible says you were born a son of Belial, but because of Christ's death and his victorious resurrection, that yoke has been broken. You can repent and follow Christ. God will save his people through the final judgment 
that comes on unrepentant sinners, the final judgment that comes on the persecutors of the church when he comes back, and the final judgment that comes on our greatest enemy, the devil, when he's defeated in the last day by just a word from Christ's mouth. That will be our salvation. That will be our comfort, our Nahum. And God will save his people from uh, the residual effects of the judgment for sin, which is death, because the dead will rise to life in Christ, to everlasting life, and they will reign with him, and they will be with him, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. Um, Can I say that again, just a different way? Glory in this. Uh, Nahum invites you to look and see on the mountains someone coming with a message, bringing good news, announcing the victory of the resurrection of Jesus, the defeat of sin, death, and hell, and hear him announce as, as if it's as good as done before it happens, the good news of the victory that comes for our resurrection, for all those who trust in Christ. And that salvation will bring us comfort because he will defeat the devil, all persecutors, all unrepentant sinners, and defeat all remaining sin in our hearts. And after he judges these, to use the language of Nahum, trouble will not rise up a second time. Uh, So go ahead. Celebrate your already accomplished salvation, even though you don't enjoy the fullness of it yet. God has promised that you will. You know the end of the story. So be faithful to him. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again, never again, shall the wicked Belial pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The Christian gospel, I quote here, provides the fullest possible framework for the permanent celebration of victory. Death has lost its sting. The believer has died to sin. The loss even of material possessions can only be temporary and soon will be replaced with the permanence of the new heavens and the new earth. Celebration by keeping the vows of the Christian life is always in order. Let's pray. God, this is a great salvation. You have called it that in the word. This is so great a salvation and we agree that the defeat of our enemies, of our greatest enemy, is for our comfort, is for our good, and is for your everlasting glory. God, I pray that you would um, enthrall us by uh, that thought of when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Now, this is our hope, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We thank you for it. Help us to be faithful in light of it now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.